this sound? Well, we call it the slammer. Hi, welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Colombian news reporter Jake Thomas. On this episode of Clark Talks, we take a close look at a place that most people would prefer not to think about, the Clark County Jail. The jail is one of the largest pieces of infrastructure owned by the county, and it's the linchpin for the local criminal justice system. But the jail has significant problems that the county will soon have to reckon with. It's become increasingly crowded, and it was designed and built in the 1980s, a time when attitudes and best practices towards corrections were very different from today. In this Sunday's Columbian, we take a look at how the jail itself has become an obstacle to reducing recidivism and what could happen if the county doesn't come up with a solution. To get a better handle on what's going on with the jail, we interviewed Clark County Chief Corrections Deputy Rick Bishop about how the county got here. He also took us on a tour of the facility. There, he showed us how the jail falls short of standards for modern correctional facilities and how his staff has gotten around the building's physical limitations. Later in the podcast, Columbia News reporter Katie Sword and I will talk with Mark Brown, the lobbyist for the City of Vancouver. We'll talk about what the 2018 legislative session meant for the City of Vancouver and just what a lobbyist does anyways. And here's our interview and tour of the jail with Rick Bishop. So what is the last major upgrade that's been made to the jail? In 2000, we upgraded and we retrofitted the, this building. Uh, it was a one, just over a million dollar project, uh, paint, uh, security system, uh, went through, did basic maintenance, uh, it was a quite, a, quite a project. That was at the same time we built the uh, jail work center, and the county board gave us funds for both projects. After that, the smaller upgrades have been suicide resistant um, uh, vents, air vents, um, other suicide mitigation since the year 2013 forward. You guys hired this consultant. Mm -hmm. um, what uh, what prompted the hiring of this consultant? It was a culminative a series of events, the inmate deaths from 2012 forward. Uh, and How then, many inmate deaths were there? What was it these suicides could, or? Yes. Okay. There was, well, there was one in custody death that um, was ruled a homicide by the medical examiner. That was a, a gentleman who uh, passed away during a physical altercation uh, with staff. The rest of them were all inmate suicides. I know that was in 2012, there was five, uh, and then the numbers vary from there. Uh, in 2015, we came back and we had some other uh, deferred maintenance. We had concerns about the building. We had a major fire event uh, in one of the duct systems. And there was a lot of concern about the condition of the building itself. And there was a lot of opinions, pro and con, what the condition really was. So we asked for the county council to fund a um, study, uh, engineering, architecture, to give us a definitive what condition is this building in. And that's what they funded for us. Well, how does that tie into the condition of the jail? The, uh, it has a lot to do with the uh, supervision type. Uh, that we have. Uh, we're an indirect supervision facility, which means there's a barrier between us and the inmates. And we go through at different times of the day, uh, randomly checking on inmate status and, and their care. Uh, modern 21st century jails, that's what's called a direct supervision uh, model, where the st staff is in among the inmates and working among the inmates. It's better security. Uh, it's better supervision. 
and it's better services delivered to the inmate population. And if you take that in our design, we wanted to increase our, our services and our safety by looking at the style of building we have and recommending a different supervision style. Well, so you, you would have uh, staff with the inmates. Yes. Would they be more in? Okay, why, why is that helpful to have staff there? Staff, um, when we go in today, uh, we walk through randomly 30 to 60 minutes at different times. So we're in there two or three minutes. During the rest of the time, the inmates are in charge. We're observing, and there's a difference between supervision and observation. This is ob we have what's called observation, and we have it both by someone in the tower you'll see, and we have someone doing it remotely by cameras. Having an officer in a direct supervision or a deputy in a direct supervision environment allows them to walk away from their desk is locked up. They walk among the inmates. They are able to find the baseline behaviors. They're able to notice when, an, let's say, an inmate is having a bad day. And the term that, that people use is they make a permanent decision on a temporary situation. They've, maybe they've gotten sentenced. Maybe the, uh, their family has decided that they're just uh, they're done dealing with them. Um, that something else occurs in their life. Well, we have deputies in there understanding their baseline behavior and seeing and intervening in that direct supervision model. Washington County uses it. In fact, we're uh, looking to go over there again in a couple weeks. Uh, Washington County, Oregon. Correct. And uh, looking at their model again. As, as we're moving forward through this. We've toured, well, I've toured 20 to 30 jails in the past few years and worked in them. Um, but there, my staff has gone to a couple of different jails and we have a direct supervision model in the jail work center and uh, for some of our program delivery in HPOD for reentry. Okay, so why, why can't you do that currently? Why can't you have? Certainly. We have 27 living units and we would have to put a deputy in each one. It just isn't economic. Uh, most of the direct supervision uh, uh, living areas will have 50 to 60 inmates, which is about what a person can be expected to remember about a group's baseline behavior. And that deputy works in there. Right now we have living units, it's five living units to one tower. And it just, we, we couldn't hire enough staff and the county couldn't afford enough staff to put that model in today. Okay, so it's, it's a staffing issue or is it, is it more of a space issue? Both. If you had more space, would you be able to use fewer sure. deputies to have supervision? It's a, it, well, first of all, when you talk about staffing, it's a multi-step process. The National Institute of Corrections has a model for staffing, and it's not just based on floor space. It's not, there's not an inmate to staff ratio. It's a multiple step process for delivery of services. So it, it takes quite a bit to figure out a proper level of staffing. But your basic question, if we had more room and we were able to spread out the population and put a deputy inside, yes, we could do that. So when this, this, this report came out from the consultants, sure. was it surprising? So yeah, let's, let's go with the one thing that we were all surprised about, that the, uh, the term that the architect and the engineers used, and they put it in terms we understood, uh -huh. uh, was the bones of the building the, the basic structure and the envelope were in good shape. The floors, the supports, uh, the engineer, we, they had engineers, architects, different types of people crawling through our building uh, during that uh, study. And they came back and said the, the structure of the building was in good shape. 
that that was a, that was good news. That means the county can repurpose this building. And part of the uh, part of the um, uh, report you're referring to also had a problem section and a solutions section. Mm -hmm. And in the solutions section, they, they talked about repurposing this building. What didn't surprise us? Uh, the condition of our security system, uh, the, uh, the condition of our doors, uh, the basic design of the building. Because they looked not only at the building itself, but how we deliver services and programs, and, um, and how cramped, I think the term was cramped. And you can see all the deficiencies, especially in our intake area, uh, where we really lack the space to assess people coming in. And we talked about that in the presentation last week. And that one of the reasons we're lowering the population in the jail is so we can build in assessment space in the main floor and, and get people uh, looked at and try to figure out what services and help they need to break the cycle of recidivism. So when you say assessment, what are we assessing? medical, mental health, uh, getting an idea of what led them to our door or what led them to the allegation of the crime that they're, they, uh, they're here for. Uh, you have a list of things of people that, uh, that our reentry program addresses, and we're trying to get that started at the door so we, when people get released, because we don't always know when someone's released. They can post bail. They can get recogged. The judge can release them. So if we can get that assessment started early, especially for chemical dependency, mm -hmm. that, that's <clears> huge. We're trying to stabilize someone coming in hot off the street with a chemical dependency issue, not knowing when they're going to get released and making sure they've got access to services both inside and outside our facility. What kind of services would be available? Drug, alcohol. Okay. So that's, that's the big one. So you're talking about uh, the opioid um, epidemic that's in our, in our uh, country right now mental health. Uh, then you've got the other ones that aren't quite as uh, apparent. Homelessness, transportation, child care, knowing how to fill out a resume and get a job. Right now our national news yellow reporting is our job joblessness is at almost at an all-time low. Yet I got people in here who don't know how to apply basic skills in applying for a job. Things that all of us take uh, uh, for granted people are struggling with and sometimes leads them down a path that brings them here. We have a very small intake area right now and assessment okay. is spread out through the building. Okay. Uh, you've got the med and, and that's part of our problem is our medical unit is upstairs and you'll see a makeshift area down here where we've created a medical area. Uh -huh. um, our mental health people are upstairs. Our, our discharge planners and our reentry over here in HPOD. Uh, our detox area, our intoxication area is over here off of booking or B pod. Our suicide is a, a mitigation act for acute suicide issues are an A pod. Uh, we're spread out, and as you you know, when you have all those services and in the DLR report, the consultant report uh -huh. you're talking about, you can see they're all concentrated in one area, so that you can use some efficiencies in your staffing and your resources to get these people assessed and stabilized, and either out the door and with some tools to break the cycle, or they go up into our population, stabilize so that we have less problems in the facility. Bishop talked about how under his watch, the jail launched a reentry program where local nonprofits, social services, government agencies, and others send volunteers or workers into the jail with the goal of trying to connect inmates with the right services that'll keep them from coming back. And the clicking noise in the background is our photographer, Amanda, taking photos. If we can break 
if we can help get people those tools, get those people those tools and break the cycle of recidivism, you're not only talking about public safety. We're a public health partner. We're huge in public health. Uh, the same people who are in your emergency department unit in the hospital or who are with the health department are here too. We can overall bring down the burden on the taxpayers. Where does your interest in this issue, trying to make the jail, of not just about punitive measures, but sure, about sure. In, in rehabilitation, where does that come from? Well, I've been here all my life. I started out as an explorer scout uh, back in the 70s. In Clark County. In Clark County. I became a reserve deputy. Like most people, I was going to go drive a patrol car. Uh, the new jail was being opened. I got into that job. I saw what needed to be done, and I and I really am a person that believes in not repeating mistakes, but learning from them. And we went through the 80s and the 90s of lock everybody up. California tried that. They almost went bankrupt. They're now having their prison system under court federal uh, direction. So keeping people locked up and not doing something about it has to work. I was exposed to reentry several years ago uh, through the National Institute of Corrections, some some consult, consulting I do. So okay, there's some evidence-based stuff that we can do, and so we brought that back idea idea back to Clark County, and I had a brand new work release sergeant, because work release was our reentry, and I called him up one day and said, "Congratulations, you're my reentry sergeant. Come on down. Uh, here's some information. Here's some uh, uh, background." Go forth and commit re-entry. I'm going to give you an empty space in the jail and a couple of staff. Good luck. Who was that person? Commander Tangan. <laughs> That's why he's turning red. And he took that and he ran with it. In a follow-up interview, Bishop stressed that he really doesn't want to take credit for launching his re-entry program. Instead, he credits community partners and his staff. Here's Commander Randy Tangan talking about how the re-entry program works. The way a reentry program works really is you you embrace the community around you know the community we live in and uh, engage the services that already exist and start to provide bridges from incarceration to those community-based services because just because of the nature of our population most people don't stay in this facility very long not long enough for them to complete any you know treatment program or anything like that so the best thing we can do is identify who needs what, and then refer them to appropriate services in the community. The response from the community was, was literally overwhelming to the point where now the biggest problem we have is we don't have enough space to accommodate all the organizations that want to help. The person has to want to do it. That's the first part. So this isn't hard to plug. I keep telling people that. If a person wants the tools, we'll get them the tools. If you just want to keep victimizing our community, and you want to keep inside and outside the jail, and you just want to do your time, okay, we'll provide you the bunk, and we have representatives when you get released and you want to keep doing it, they'll come pick you up again until you decide that you want to break the cycle. It's a two-pronged approach because we don't have the resources, space, money, even though we have a lot of community partners, <clears throat> to immerse everybody like they did in the 70s with, with what you call rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So if you, want the, if you want the help, We'll get it to you. What we really need to hit is that 40-year-old career criminal who wakes up one morning and says, I can't do this anymore. Because if you've got someone who comes in 
10 times a year. And the average, uh, our cost per day is about 83 bucks a day. And the average length of stay is about 16 days. And they come in 10 times a year, so 160 days at 80 bucks a day, you're talking about a lot of money. But Bishop said that the biggest obstacle to expanding these services is the physical structure of the jail itself. We can make it work, but not to the level we need to. So it's not, what, what does that mean? What would it look like if it's working at the level it needs to? We would have a much larger area. Most jails that I've been in that are above 1,000 beds, and we were getting up to 800 and something before we started coming back down and, and working on how we're uh, service, uh, providing services. They have a nurse at the door, like we do today. We have an RN at the door 24 hours a day. And they have a mental health counselor. And they have the room to do it. We need a better way. It can be 16% of your, of your jail population is severely mentally ill. It depends on what you read, whether or not it's 40% who are chemically dependent or upwards of 70 to 80%. You take that kind of population, you have to have the supervision, and you have to have the services, and then you have to have the security so they're safe. And yeah, we're making it work right now, and we're delivering the services to the best of our ability, but the community and our partners expect more. I asked Bishop what would happen if upgrades aren't made to the jail. If they don't make changes, we will run any kind of resource that the county gives us to the best of our ability. And that's why you've seen us lowering the population. And the question the county asked is, what if the population doesn't get lowered? And my answer was, I'll be back before you to rent beds somewhere in the state. Where would that happen? Where would you rent beds? Uh, we've looked at three or four. There's three or four different jails in the state that rent beds. Um, Yakima rents beds. Benton rents beds. Would not be ideal. You, you see, you've got some issues with community contact, especially the mentally ill. Right. Maintaining their community contact is essential. Bishop took us on a tour of the jail where the first stop was H-Pod. This is where the jail offers its reentry program. So this is H. This is... When they've got inmates in here, there's the classroom, uh, some separate areas, uh, computers for work source, for, this is direct supervision. Mm -hmm. Desk, inmates, nothing between them. This is our old work release unit from back in the 90s that we repurposed. So our classroom for our reentry class, this is over here where we have providers come in and provide those classes. That's Sergeant Ken Clark. So they do all of that type of classroom work there. So when they take breaks, they go to the, the dorms, so they still have areas where they can get away from that stuff. And then we also have our LEAP program, which is an employment program. Mm -hmm. So we've set it up in there where we have actual computers where they can go out and do, um, there's lesson plans they do on the computers, they build the resumes, they spend a lot of time working through that. They also do um, interview practice. What they do is they go in there and then they, they work with our works our folks and they have two different classes. They have one where it's a basics class where they talk about doing resumes and how to present at a work, uh, in a work environment. And then they have a secondary part of the class where they actually have some of the uh, people who employ in our community come in and actually do a little bit of recruiting, talk about what jobs are available to them, how they should apply for them. And then with LEAP, the LEAP program, they have a caseworker that follows them from inside here. As they're released, they can go to work source outside and have a contact. So it's it's conduit. So they go from here to there, and they have somebody they know, and then they can kind of keep them going on caseworker. Okay. If someone's got a challenge or a barrier to proper discharge, 
we'll find it for them, or they'll, we'll help them get that kind of plan. So what would this look like um, if you had the money? It wouldn't be a program located like this. We'd be able to take these community partners, we would be able to take them into the housing units, the deputy would be both posted right there, and these community partners could work with people right there and deliver the services real time. Not having to wait, not having to be screened, they're in there getting that service so that we can get some of that higher hanging fruit and really start to break some of those cycles and reduce those length of stay. So what is the evidence that, that these programs work? So about three years ago, Commander Tangan did a, uh, a study for me because I wanted to know the answers myself. And we were shocked to learn that our graduates from our reentry program, actually the incarceration or the recidivism went up, which was a little bit a bit of a heart, you know, heart stopper to see that. But what we saw was they went up in technical violations. So things that you and I wouldn't go to jail for, having a beer, uh, uh, going and seeing a friend that we're not supposed to, uh, being out at a certain time or visiting someplace we're not supposed to, technical or reporting, when you, and you should have reported an hour earlier. Technical violations went up. But our Class B, our Class C, Felonies, our gross misdemeanors, and misdemeanors all went down. So people were not committing new crimes as much. They were getting in trouble for trying to obey the court uh, instructions. But the but victimizing our community went down. So we said, okay, is that just us? Or is there something else out there that we can look at? So we went to Maricopa County, and at that time run by Sheriff Joe Alpayo, toughest sheriff in the country. So well, he, why would you go to Maricopa County? Because it happened, we happened to find the research there. He talked about his tent city and he talked about different things, but he also ran a reentry program that he didn't talk about a whole lot. And we found that our numbers and our experience was similar. Not exact, a couple, couple percentage points off, but similar to their findings as well. We validated our program and our findings here locally. And that's what tells it it's evidence-based, plus re-entry literature across the country that we can get you through the National Institute of Corrections. Okay. Bishop gave us a tour of the rest of the jail. It's a maze of hallways that are blocked off with big metal doors that make loud slamming noises when they shut. The whole interior is bathed in a very yellow, unnatural light. So they're, they're, uh, it's meal service right now. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go through and try not to disrupt. Okay. Okay. So we're an intake. This was built in 84 to process 6,000 people a year. We process about 16,000. How do you do that? Slowly. Okay. What's, what's this room used for? It looks um, like it's, is it it's bathroom? Just, it's just holding. It's just holding. But one of the things that a little known fact about us, we also, uh, we're the holding for public health. Okay. These are negative airflows. So if someone doesn't take their medication, there's a civil arrest warrant. The public uh, public health officer. So, so negative airflow that that indicates that somebody's taking them out, taking the air out, and then they're contagious with something. We don't do it very often. Every once in a while, we get someone in who doesn't take their medication. The public health officer has them arrested and brought to us until they're stabilized. It's okay. just that's what those most people don't know what those things are. Okay. So when somebody comes in here, what do they do? So they come. They the patrol car pulls in here into this garage area right here. Correct. Call it a sally port. In fact, there's one coming in right now. Um, they pull in, they secure their weapons, they make sure the person is searched, they come up here, 
Um, they wait. They have some electronic uh, documents they present to our folks. Their person is brought in. They're patted down. Clothing is taken. Weapons or anything is taken. Receipt is given. Then we have screens upon screens. And this lady's having a crisis right now. Um, we have screens upon person screens. in the background. Yeah. Uh, we have screens upon screens of information that we uh, collect from the person, uh, including if there's any kind of medical issues they have right there. Around the corner, we have an RN who's stationed. Mm -hmm. We have signs saying, if you need medical attention in English, Spanish, and Russian? Yes. Okay. Plus, for the hearing impaired, we have some signs that they can ask for different types of... Uh, the accommodation. Okay. The accommodation for disability. Right. So we, we're trying they to come through here. Uh, information... Uh, that's where they give them information right there. Put into uh, uh, jail clothing. Um, waiting for processing to go upstairs. Uh, if they're intoxicated, we have two detox uh, larger cells. They're not that big. Over there on this floor? Yeah. Okay. That's so what is this, this curtain here? Well, when we opened, our fingerprints and pictures were around the corner over there. Well, we needed a place for uh, the nurse to, for medical privacy. So we ended up moving all of our, our fingerprint machine is there, and our literally our camera is right there, and you have a privacy curtain for your photo. Okay, for so, you this is for your photo. Yeah. Okay. For the mugshot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Why would you need a privacy curtain for that? You don't want to put people on display. Again, it's basic human dignity. Plus, we take pictures of different parts of their body, and we may have them roll up things. And we don't want a young lady with a bunch of guys. Sure. As she's, as she's getting her photo taken. So, okay. Make sense? Okay, where's the nurse? The nurse is down there. Around the corner. Okay. The and if you, and you would have like more, all the offices for all various services here. This would here? be triple the size. This would be in a 21st century jail when you go to Washington County. This is actually, this area here and these areas here are open. There is no, there is, it looks like a bus station. There's a bunch of seating like that, which we just got the seating here a few weeks ago. Before that, we had a bunch of uh, benches. Um, there'd be an open area, there'd be a TV set, phones, water, restrooms, and if you're a lady or gentleman, you would sit there and wait to be processed in. Around the outside are cells. If you aren't a lady or gentleman, we have a cell that you can wait in. So what, what who's not a lady or gentleman? Is it somebody who... Uh, someone who's highly intoxicated, who may be assaultive, verbally disruptive. They go in one of these cells. Right. Okay. But that would be a modern jail. A modern intake area, it's expected behavior. You're explained the jail rules when you come in, and you immediately learn direct supervision and what's expected. And that way you run a calmer, quieter jail. You have your medical. I've seen some jails where the inmates sit there and they've got a number or the last name, and this is gone, and the technician or the corrections deputy uh, Smith needs you to come up now to sit down, just like you would do at DMV <laughs> right. or any place else, and be processed in. Okay. And so would this wall be here, or would these cells be here? Or? Okay. It would well, be all open with cells on the outside of it. Cells be for the, the non-ladies and gentlemen. Correct. Right now, I don't know how you feel, but this is pretty closed in. Okay. This so you think people just be calmer with the environment? Well, I know. You know. How do I you know. know? I've been in 20, uh, 30 jails in the past eight years in 25 different uh, jurisdictions. And just having this layout that you described really Calms. does contribute right. to a calmer atmosphere. Correct. Okay. You still have some people who aren't ladies and gentlemen who need it so. But 
a majority understand how this works. Okay. 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 No photos, please. So this is our. Come on, come on over. It's okay. So these guys are intoxicated or detoxed. So these gentlemen are in here for 12 hours to four days. We clean it out a couple times a day, but this is this is what we have for intoxication right now. What we and detox. What I want is some have a detox like this. So after 12 hours, you you at least sobered up. You may not be detoxed, but you're sobered up. You're not acting out. Then we get to the detox area. We have it down here because a nurse is here and she does vitals, and she checks on them every 30 minutes, and the officers check on them every 15 minutes at different times to make sure they're okay. Uh, this is the infamous blue room, uh, active suicide. Uh, this deputy here is 24. Is someone here 24 hours a day? Cameras in each of the cells. Probably <coughs> privacy marks over the toilets. Um, again, basic human dignity. Uh, but we have a, the mental health comes down here uh, several times a day and week to check on folks. We want them cleared out of here as soon as possible. How do you? When? When are they? When can you clear them out? What? Well, the mental health counselor, their master's level mental health counselors, says that they're no longer a threat to themselves. Okay. So this is uh, part of the work we've done. You'll see that the phones, they don't have cords. It's the old-fashioned picture. Um, inside, uh, you, the, uh, the, the uh, air vents are specially designed, so it reduces the uh, chance of, of uh, self-hanging uh, uh, yourself. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. medical. This is the original medical unit. Um, med 1. Med 2 over there is a uh, uh, was a multi-purpose room that we built into a medical room. That's right. Hmm? So you built it into a medical room? Yeah. Okay. There's no holding areas, no, no living units. They're all over here. We have a 24-hour uh, deputy posted. Um, and we have emergency buttons and things in the medical unit and Space for people to put their equipment, mm -hmm. CPAP machines, wheelchairs, other things that wouldn't go in an indirect supervision facility. Instead of having two separate units with, with uh, dental suite, doctor, mental health counselor, mental health counselor, doctor, PA, nurse, nurse. Right, so they're all over. They're it's all over out. the place. And you got another nurse's station downstairs. Again, I mean, but you make it work. I mean, how, we are, we are, but it's the number of staff we're using. That's the whole thing. We're, we're overcoming the building's deficiencies and outdated design with people, which isn't the best. Most with people. Possible. So the people are just working harder. Just no, just working harder. We got more of them. Have more people. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you, you would require less people if you would. I mean, depending on the physical design, uh -huh. or we would use the same amount of people to give better service. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I keep, I'm, I'm asked all the time, how many more staff would it take? It depends, you know, once we get a floor plan and we move this here, maybe we can eliminate a post here, maybe we can do this. But it's a, it's a multi-step process. Power, indirect. Wow. So, 
medium security. Again, indirect supervision. Okay. Remember I told you at the beginning of the interview? Yes. No, we're okay. I'm just, I just knocked a new window. Thank you. Um, that all this would be gone. This whole area would be cells with this whole open space and the deputy's tower would be a desk right here. Okay. Instead of having these pods. Right. Right. So having these living units, we would we would have them. And then your community partners and your services. There's already a deputy in here providing security. Right. They come in. So right now we're in this hallway and we're looking at a pod at a medium security um, females. Females. It's uh, some of them are on the phone, the walls are really scuffed. Some of them are lying down, some of them are cleaning stuff. And then we're in this hallway that it's, it's, uh, divides a, the, the pod and the, and the, the deputy who is supervising, the, who is uh, observing. Yep. Um, now, this, now, I will say, we've done, a, the staff has done a terrific job in keeping this place clean. It's, it, it's, it may not seem like it. It may not seem like it, but this is a clean jail. Right. For an indirect supervision, this is a clean jail. These folks really do a good job of keeping their living unit Considering that there's an average of two to three people per cell, they're doing a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. And and these ladies over here in their uh, dormitory have done a really good job. Okay. Okay. Now I I'm, I've got my nose is dead in the smell, but every jail has a, an odor. Yeah, what is it, what is the smell from? What do we smell? People. Just people. People and cl and cleaning well, solutions. But yeah, well, I mean that's that's it. You're smelling people. But. We're lucky we don't smell it anymore. Yeah. So, all right, let's walk to the other side. So, this is the same for males. We have uh, mm -hmm. all commander. Still maximum security, sliders. Part of the bed reduction of the population is we used to have double bunks in all the lower sections, and these are now single bunks because if you're mentally ill or you've got an issue, um, just because I've got two bunks in there doesn't mean I can use them. So we went to single bunks and lowered the bed count to reflect that actual cell was being used by one person. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, right now, it looks like we're putting in the new camera or the new uh, TV. Uh, they're building the custom box right now. Perfect. So part of the, suic part of the suicide mitigation was when you were in. Um, H-Pod, there's a big box for TV where people could get up on top and do different things. The county bought a uh, trim line and there's slopes so people can't get up there and it reduces the suicide risk. So, uh, how do I get into the line of the law library? I have to be approved. So, writing thanks to a certain certain Okay, cool, thank you. Mm -hmm. yep. Uh, so medical, um, one multi-purpose room, that's it. Uh, I've got two outdoor recs, but if it's 30 degrees outside, it's 30 degrees in there. Or if it's 100 degrees outside, it's 100 degrees in there. So we don't use them during the summer and the winter very much. It's this one room. You've got 27 housing units. One room. One room. Okay. Not enough. So, so part of that direct supervision and part of that, uh, that idea is keeping people busy. 
keeping people moving, <laughs> having a plan, less likely to commit suicide, less likely to harm themselves, less likely to get themselves into trouble. It's the old idle hands sure. um, uh, saying. Uh, right now you saw people in there in a, in a working themselves, the deputies directing verbally through the speakers, but that's it. We have some TV sets and some books. We have four, two or four, two carts, four book carts to move around. I mean, we're not being soft, we're being smart. Mop buckets. Um, this, is, this is jail. Next up on Clark Talks, Mark Brown. Who do you lobby for, Mark? Well, first of all, I've been lobbying on behalf of one or more people for 47 years. And this legislative session is my 46th, and that was 47 year span of time. There was only one January in that 47 year span of time where there wasn't a legislative session. I've done consulting lobbying as opposed to being inside working for an organization. I've been a consulting lobbyist now for I think about 20 years, and my clients today include the cities of Vancouver and Richfield. I also have the city of Lacey and the city of Carnation, and I also currently represent Partners in Careers, that wonderful workforce training group down in Clark County, and then also the amazing folks at the Historic Trust, which, as you know, manage uh, all of the uh, city-owned properties within the Historic Reserve, and they also now have the Mother Joseph Academy building, and I've had all of these clients for a long time. The city of Vancouver, I think, probably for over 20 years. So, Mark, what exactly does a lobbyist do in, in Olympia? In one word, advocate uh, is, I think, the best single word description. We're an advocate. Um, our job is to get state government to be value-added for our clients. Um, we want the legislature to be helpful, not uh, hurtful or harmful. Um, we want the executive branch of state government to be a positive influence. Uh, we're just like everybody else. If there's a grant uh, program, we want our fair share. If there's a new transportation revenue package, we want our fair share. Uh, legislation, we don't want in, uh, unfunded cost or underfunded cost to be imposed upon us. We don't want preemption of local control. Um, we have policy bills, like some that Vancouver is pursuing this year, uh, that we'd like to have advanced. And so we, we want state government to be helpful, a partner, and so you end up with offense and defense. There's stuff that's proposed that you don't like, there's stuff that's proposed that you do, but you're an advocate for your clients, you want the legislature to be value-added, and for the most part, I think uh, that has been the case, uh, uh, at least for the, the time that I've been uh, on the ground up here in Olympia lobbying. So, so Mark, I think a, with a lot of members of the public, they think of lobbying as it, is, it has this image in their mind of maybe like backroom deals and smoke room, smoke filled rooms. Uh, but what what does? But I imagine the work is a lot more mundane. How do you advocate for your clients? Well, that's a great question, and it's not 
going to be a, a short answer, but you do everything you need to do. Let's take the city of Vancouver as an example. One of my jobs is to work with them in advance of a legislative session to develop an agenda. What is it we want to ask the legislature to do? What capital budget projects do we want them to fund? If there's transportation funding, what projects? We are identifying policy issues, changes in state law that we want to have made by the legislature to make things better on the streets in the city of Vancouver. You're looking to help them identify opportunities and develop a legislative agenda. That's their ask. Then in advance of legislative session, you're meeting with legislators and you're saying, would one of you be willing to sponsor a bill that will help law enforcement in dealing with illegal massage and reflexology parlor and activities? Would one of you uh, please sponsor a bill that would make it easier for us to surplus low-value property? Uh, would one of you help sponsor a bill that would expand an existing Department of Ecology grant program for municipal wastewater facilities so we could be eligible? You're looking for legislators to sponsor your bills. Then you've got to get those bills introduced and referred to committee. Then you've got to go to the committee chair and ask for a hearing. Then if there's a hearing, you have to orchestrate the hearing. Then we've got to get the bill scheduled for executive action and move to House rule, Rules Committee. And then from rules to the floor, then we've got to line up the votes. And you're doing everything you can within a complicated, highly competitive, time-limited environment to advance your client's interest. And so you're doing all of those things. You're also meeting with legislative staff. And, you know, you're working the doors. Some of your listeners and viewers might have heard that expression. You're literally at the doors of the House and Senate sending notes in, asking legislators to vote yes on this bill or no on that bill. You're using modern technology. You're emailing and texting legislators. It's a interesting process. You're trying to influence the outcome of the process. You're using every means available to you. I have been fortunate during my career to represent people that wear white hats, being governments and nonprofits that are just trying to make things better for their communities and for the people that use their services. But I apologize for the long answer, but it's complicated. Right. So, so when you're advocating for a bill, do you you, are you just being persuasive? Are you just making the case? Or do you have any leverage? Or do you have anything to trade? Or how how do you get what your clients want? Well, in, in my case, it's um, I have the advantage, as I just mentioned, of representing what I call the White House, the good folks. My clients are trying to help people. So what we take to legislators is ways in which we can make things better on the streets of Vancouver and let them take credit for doing that. So we have ideas, we have projects, we have needs. I mean, who wouldn't want to see the Clark County Historical Museum, which is owned by the city of Vancouver, the old Carnegie Library, who wouldn't want to see uh, that made accessible for ADA purposes, uh, which it's not now. So we're asking for a grant for 300 and some thousand dollars to make that facility ADA compliant. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we do. We have good ideas for improving things in the community. 
And that really is the best leverage. We're not asking for anything that increases someone's profit margin. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the point is we're just trying to make things better with great ideas and projects. And so that's the leverage. That's, you know, we don't have political action committees. We don't make campaign contributions. Not My clients don't. And so we just have great ideas for improving Vancouver and Richfield and the lives of people on the streets down there. And so that's the leverage we have. So it sounds like uh, last year, anyway, the city of Vancouver um, was pretty successful in getting a lot of the things that they deemed priorities passed in the legislature. I know there were a couple uh, issues that were still working on for this year. I know the you know money for fire truck from federal funding, um, which is a little different. But um, how how would you say the cities did this year? That's a question that has to come with a big. Um caveat, and that is a lot of our interests are determined by the outcome of the budget negotiations and the final budgets that will be approved by the legislature before they adjourn and go home on Thursday. So we don't have final budget documents to look at, and that's a big part of our ask this year. So um, again, I have to caveat this answer by saying there's there's more information I need before I can give you a conclusive answer. But the Senate has passed their package of supplemental bills, operating capital and transportation. The House has done the same. So we know what's in these products. Uh, and it's generally very good news for the interest in Clark County. Uh, now, having said that, I do want to ask you to keep in mind that the top priority for Richfield and Vancouver, as an example, at the start of this session was getting the two-year biennial capital budget approved. Remember, they ended the legislature in 2017 for the first time in history without a two-year capital budget. So the first thing we wanted the legislature to do was to um, figure out how to get a capital budget approved. Uh, ironically, there wasn't any particular problems with the capital budget that had been negotiated, but Republicans in particular in the Senate, but also in the House, used the capital budget as leverage to try to get the legislature to fix a Supreme Court decision that was referred to as the Hearst decision, as H-I-R-S-T. It had to do with private water rights. And as a result of a failure to address first, we ended up without a capital budget last year. So we now have a two-year capital budget. That was approved, I think, the third week of this 60-day uh, session. And there's money for the North Campus uh, in Richfield of Clark College. There's money for the museum uh, in downtown Vancouver that we just talked about. There's money for projects throughout the region, improvements at the Harmony Sports Facility improvements to the Bridgefield project that's a partnership uh, with the led by the Vancouver Housing Authority uh, the folks that do home care uh, at the CDM uh, share there's just a, a lot of uh, capital budget uh, dollars that will now flow to good projects in Clark County so that by itself uh, I think represents uh, a success now these supplemental budgets for the rest of the biennium that are in play, uh, 
there's a lot in there for Clark County as well. Um, the Port of Vancouver is redeveloping uh, the old Red Lion site. They have this, what they call Terminal One project, the Renaissance Trail. There's money in the supplemental transportation budget approved by the Senate uh, for the Renaissance Trail, and there's money in the House capital budget for the Terminal One project itself for infrastructure. There is uh, a grant uh, for the folks at Partners in Career to do a pilot uh, with the uh, WorkSource people that's in the Senate operating supplemental budget. There's a lot of things in these transportation, capital, and operating supplemental budgets that will um, we'll, we'll see the product here within the next 24 hours that I think will bring more good news uh, for the folks down in Clark County. The city of Vancouver also wants the state to put more funding into the Criminal Justice Training Commission for the Basic Law Enforcement Academy. I think that will happen. We also want them to increase the amount of money they're sharing with cities from the marijuana sales in the state of Washington. I think that's going to happen. So I think that at the end of the day, when I come down on the 12th of March and do my report to the city of Vancouver, I think it will generally be good news. Are we going to get everything we asked for? Of course not. We never do, and we don't expect that. Is there anything that the city is really hoping for that you think isn't going to make it through the session? Uh, probably the one area where I'm most disappointed has to do with uh, the city of Vancouver was seeking four pieces of legislation. That was too much in a 60-day session where there's so limited little time and so much competition. But they were hoping that we could get a change in state law to make it easier to <coughs> surplus low-value property. Um, this is, I think, really interesting. The city of Vancouver wanted to give a file cabinet away to Habitat for Humanity estimated value of that $75. They had to bring the law department in to actually draft a resolution, publish and publicize that, and hold a public hearing so they could give a, a $75 used cabinet away to Habitat for Humanity. That's ridiculous, cost time and money. So we had a bill to uh, simplify that process for surplusing low value property. Uh, one other thing that I think you've written about that you'll be interested to know is I don't know if Senate Bill 6195 is going to get delivered to the governor. As a reminder, this is the bill that within the Department of Transportation would create a new Projects of Statewide Significance Program for transportation projects over $1 billion in cost. And the idea is that these projects are complicated. They're mega projects. They're mega difficult. And this would put a team of people into the Department of Transportation to help from the get-go move those projects forward. That bill passed the Senate, cleared the House Transportation Committee, and is sitting in Senate rules. And... Um, it may not survive, it may not pass, and, and if it doesn't, we'll be back at it next year. But that would be a big disappointment to us. Speaking of complicated transportation projects, uh, the the conversation of an I-5 bridge is ever-present, especially given that the mayor here has identified that as a priority. 
something that, you know, she really wants to work on. Oregon isn't really ready to come to the table, it seems, but have you heard any talk of it up in Olympia? Well, um, actually, uh, there's been a lot of talk in Olympia because there actually were a couple of different bills to deal with, uh, with this, uh, either directly or indirectly. First of all, remember that last year, our legislature, at the request of our delegation, uh, created a five-state coordinating panel comprised of an equal number of Washington legislators and Oregon legislators to reboot the conversation about how we're going to replace those two bridges. Uh, it's not resuscitating the CRC project. That's dead. It's not looking in the rearview mirror. It's looking forward about how, on a bi-state basis, we, we figure out what the solution is to replacing those bridges. It could be a little bigger conversation than that, but that's the focus. Washington appointed their uh, eight uh, legislators, and we're still waiting for Oregon to do that. Um, there was a bill this session to make sure that the funding for that bi-state group um, was actually available. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but there was a question about whether any of that could be spent unless both Oregon and Washington were at the table. Uh, even without Oregon, there's some work that needs to be done. And so there was a bill to ensure that that funding was available to be spent. And it turns out they don't need the bill. It can be handled administratively. But, you know, you have that conversation going on in the House and Senate. And so that, that legislation uh, brought focus to this. Again, you've had 6195 in the House Companion Measure on projects of statewide significance. That bill is not specific to how we will replace those bridges. But obviously, when there is a project, it would be over a billion dollars, and it would benefit from that kind of a program. So that legislation brought focus to the continued need to figure out where we're going next. Uh, Representative Kraft had a bill uh, to study a third bridge, and that brought some attention to this challenge and issue. That bill didn't pass. So yeah, there's been a lot of discussion here this session about how we continue to move that ball forward. With uh, the Democrats now controlling both houses of the legislature, how has that changed things? How, has there been more bills passed? Have the quality of the bills passed? Or what has that meant for your work? Well, that's a great question. And it's interesting because it's the first time in a while that we've had uh, both the House and Senate controlled by the same party. And I think that it's the reason why we ended up with an unprecedented number of new bills for a short 60-day session. I mean, theoretically, the 60-day session is do the supplemental budgets and maybe deal with some emergencies, one or two major policy initiatives, and go home. Uh, but because Democrats have been in the minority in the Senate in particular, you ended up with a a unprecedented number of new bills. Um, I actually stopped counting when there were 1,500 new bills introduced this year. And keep in mind that there are hundreds of bills that were introduced last year that are alive and active and under consideration. So from a lobbyist perspective, you ended up with an unprecedented volume of legislation 
moving through the various pipelines and subject to the various cutoffs. And so that's why I said in my introductory comments about how it's very competitive up here just to get a hearing, to get a bill scheduled for executive, to get it pulled out of rules and brought onto the floor calendar. There's so much competition. Uh, it's made it much more difficult, frankly, and far more bills died than passed. The second I would say is you've seen a lot of legislation that never would have passed. I mean, the Democrats in the House and Senate have an agenda. They wanted to pass the Voters' Rights Act of 2018. They wanted to ban farm or, or farm uh, reared fish uh, from uh, our coastal waters. Uh, they wanted to move forward on motor voter registration. So when you get your driver's license or registered your vehicle, I can't even remember, you're going to be automatically registered to vote. They wanted to move forward on pay equity, and uh, in, in they were able to send that bill to the governor. They wanted to move forward on net neutrality. None of those bills would have passed if Republicans controlled either the House or Senate, and I'm not saying that's bad or good, it's just a fact of the matter. So you have what can only be described as a lot of pent-up frustration by the Democrats with the inability to move what can only be considered a very progressive agenda forward, and so now they're doing that. Uh, also, one of those bills that you, that you did mention was the carbon tax, which yeah. we heard a lot about. I suspect we haven't heard the last about this. Uh, what, where did the city of Vancouver stand with that? What would that have meant for the city of Vancouver? Well, uh, I believe there was only one employer in Clark County, maybe two, that would have been impacted by that, a relatively small number of carbon-producing employers would have been impacted by that. The city of Vancouver did not take a position on that legislation. We were not for it or against it. Uh, when you say we haven't seen the last of it, you're right. There actually was an initiative that was filed last Friday, and that legislation is a consortium of uh, labor and environmental groups, some tribal interests, and so that bill is, excuse me, that issue will undoubtedly find its way on the November ballot, and so that will move from the legislative arena uh, to the general electorate making decision on that next year. Uh, the House did have hearings, excuse me, the Senate had hearings on a bill. Uh, they were able to move a substitute bill out of the Senate Ways and Means Committee and onto the Senate floor. Uh, but last Thursday, I think it was, the prime sponsor of that bill said we're a couple boards short. So that bill's not going to pass either the House or Senate. Now, the House wanted to enact a capital gains tax. Uh, that's another example of the legislation that the city of Vancouver, none of my clients took a position on that. Uh, they wanted to use that to help fund a reduction of the property taxes that was the result of the McClary fix uh, from 2017. That bill also uh, never moved to the House floor for a vote uh, because there aren't 50 votes in the House to pass it. Uh, but it's a, something that the governor is interested in. He's also interested in the carbon tax. And so those will be back at some, the, both of those will be back in one way or another. I don't know if the capital gains tax goes on the ballot or if it's just a legislative issue next year, but it's not going to go away either. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Mark.
My pleasure. It's uh, I don't want to sound too grateful, but I'm really grateful that I have uh, some great clients down in Vancouver that, like I said, are all white hats just trying to do good things. And that's our podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find the podcast just about anywhere you find podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We post it straight to the Columbians website the first Thursday of each month. So you can find it basically everywhere. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you later.